seat. Uh, I'm going to pray in just a moment. I put this here, you guys. I, I can talk pretty loud, but I'll uh, do my best to speak up. Put that there. But uh, so if I've not had a chance to meet you, welcome. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. At least I will be for the next, uh, well, hour or so, uh, and then I'm out of here. So. Um, Let me just say, first of all, to the members of Restoration Church, let me thank you for this wonderful gift that you've given to my wife and I, my family and I, uh, as we go on sabbatical for the next couple of months. And so um, it is with great joy that we'll get to go and experience a bit of rest, hopefully. And uh, uh, but the thing I've been thinking about most recently is not so much what we will gain, but what we will lose, as it were. And um, I've worshipped with this church for almost the last decade. Almost every Sunday. So this is going to be really hard and difficult for us to not gather with you every Sunday. So uh, that's been difficult for me at times to consider. I've said to many people time and again that if I wasn't a member of this church, I wasn't a pastor of this church, I would want to join this church. And so uh, I love you and we will miss you. Uh, but know that we'll be back. I think about uh, folks, everybody from Stephanie was a new member to David Attaway was a member at the very beginning. Um, we love you. We thankful. We're thankful for you. We'll be worshiping the next two weeks at a church yet to be named. Uh, working on that. Uh, we'll visit with our church, our sister church in Tampa, Covenant Life Church, and then we'll be spending the bulk of our time in Naples at Faith Bible Church in Naples, Florida, where a friend Justin Harris is a pastor. So grateful for you. Love you, and enjoy God's grace as we are away. Make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ, and I'll see you in a few months. Um, But since this is my last sermon for like three months, I figured I'd preach the whole Bible. (laughs) I hope you guys are right with that. Like I really am going to preach the whole Bible. But hopefully it won't be that long. So if you want to have a text to turn to, just go ahead and open up to Matthew 1. Uh, We'll eventually get there. Uh, So let me pray for us in preparation for the preaching of God's Word. Father, we do thank you for your Word. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come. And oh, God, what joy it is to consider that you will come again. And that's the day for which we hope today. So, God, we do. We look back and wonder at what you have done. We look forward, trust, and hope what you will do. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the great traditions of American families is to watch old Christmas movies. Uh, You can think about a few of them. My favorite, It's a Wonderful Life, or Polar Express, or The Grinch, or uh, what are the other ones? Um, Yeah, Christmas Carol. Yeah, these kinds of things. I want you to do something for a moment. I want you to imagine picking up watching those old Christmas movies right when the plot line is being answered. Right when it all comes together. Imagine starting the movie right in that moment. You would skip the establishment of the story. You would skip the struggle in the story. Uh, but there you, there you are, you're watching with all of the stories sort of coming together. So imagine, for instance, picking up right at the beginning of the movie, Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas Day, going town to town, or going to door to door and blessing people, being all kind. Imagine picking up the story when the Grinch has his heart grow, all those different sizes. Imagine that. You would enjoy those times. You would enjoy the movie uh, to a degree, right? But you would have missed the rest of the story, and therefore you would have missed the profound joy Cause of not knowing the rest of the story. It wouldn't be nearly as enjoyable as it would if you knew the rest of the story. And so, friends, that's the way it is when we celebrate the birth of Christ without knowing the rest of the story of his coming. We know the angels sing. We can presume why they sing. But we can't rejoice alongside of them with any kind of depth unless we too know the rest of the story of the coming of Christ. And so here's what I'm going to do. Just as I said, we're going to pick up the book in, uh, of the Bible right from the very beginning in Genesis 1. We're going to work our way right through to get us to the answering of all of God's promises in Matthew and the coming of Christ. We're going to start in the book of Genesis, and I'm just going to skip a rock right across till eventually we get to Matthew 1. And then we'll just briefly take a look uh, at the rest of the Bible in the New Testament, finishing up in Revelation. So here's the big idea. Single sentence that sort of brings together the the entire storyline of the Bible. God is aiming to establish a people in a place under his rule and blessing for his forever glory and his people's forever good. There's the whole Bible. 
That's going to be happening through Christ. God is aiming to establish a people in a place under his rule and blessing for his forever glory and his people's good. God's people in God's place under God's rule for God's glory and for his people's good. You're going to hear that sentence a lot. So there's four story, four acts of the Bible, as it were. The Bible is one cohesive story. There's four acts. We're going to spend most of our time in that second act. So let's begin with the first act of this great story that leads up to the coming of Christ. Act 1, scene 1, creation. Very first sentence in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a foundational sentence, foundational belief. God made the heavens and the earth. God made what we live in today. And from verse 3 of Genesis 1 down to the end of the chapter, we see how the Lord fills out what he has formed. Skies and land and plants and animals. Uh, And the chief of God's creation is mankind. We read about them in uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They're created with a special distinction. Verses 26 and 27, mankind is created in the image of God. They're unique. What that means is, is they're unique. Humanity is unique in that they have an ability to know God, to have a relationship with God. Dogs, cats, plants, animals don't. And so as a result of them knowing God, they then have a responsibility to then show God. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. And so we find in Genesis 1.28, as a result of mankind being created in the image of God, they have this special call, a foundational call. Genesis 1.28 says, be fruitful and multiply. This is God speaking to man. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over or subdue and have dominion of the earth. So there's the mission. Setting up the storyline. Fill the world, we could say, with worshipers of God. Fill the world with a people that look like me. That do what I would do in this world that I have made for my glory. We see later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, God creates for Adam, Adam, man, a helper. 2.22, we see God creates woman. Man forms, the woman fills as they work together in this great covenant and the marital covenant. Marriage comes together. And God gets to the end of all of this and says it's very good. It's very good. Creation is not bad in and of itself. It's made by God. It's very good. And since he alone is good, God is good, he's able to then say what is very good. And he says it all is very good. God gave men and women all kinds of plants and tasty foods and uh, things to eat from. There was one tree of which they were not supposed to eat of. That was part of God's instructions to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. And so here you have the conclusion of Act 1 in the story. Act 1 fades, and what we find is God's people, Adam and Eve, are there. That's his people, and they're presumably his descendants. They are in God's place of Eden. They are under God's rule and blessing of his command to multiply, fill, and rule over, and to enjoy. And this, as a result, gives God glory. And this, of course, is good for Adam and Eve. That's how Act 1 ends. Act 2 comes to fruition, and that is the fall. First act is the fall, second act is, sorry, first act is creation, second act is fall, and here we find Adam and Eve fail the mission. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 6, they reject God's rule and blessing by trying to be like God themselves, which results in having creation rule over them through the serpent, instead of them ruling over that serpent. Destruction then enters into the picture. This spoils, this sin, this disordering of things, spoils God's good creation. Like one drop of poison spoils a whole cup of water. Like one germ spoils a whole human body. And this results then, as a, as a consequence, Adam and Eve entering into death and destruction and dismay. And God being holy, being pure cannot be in the presence of something that is sinful. Therefore, he sets or separates himself from man. And again, all this destruction and dismay enter into the world. Adam and Eve are now subjected to what we all know now and experience. Pain, disappointment, brokenness. And now, instead of Adam and Eve's children being worshipers of God and they're having every child, think about this, from Genesis 1.28, after they're, uh, they're, they're created, every child would have been a worshiper of God, filling the world. Yet now, as a result of sin, God's separating himself. Now every child that they have is broken, set apart from God's good graces. And so as a result, their children then are broken into a, are born into a broken world. But all is not lost. 
Amidst all of this sad turn of events, there is one glimmering promise that comes out immediately after the fall. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord is handing out curses to creation, and one of those curses is to the evil one who is speaking through that serpent. And the Lord says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise or crush his heel. So what we see from that verse, that important verse, right after the fall, we see that uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be this struggle between the offspring of the woman and evil. In other words, humanity is going to struggle with evil. That's what God says. Isn't that what we're seeing today? And then there was a second thing. Did you catch it? There was a second promise that is critical to the storyline of Scripture in our world. Did you notice the shift from second person uh, singular to first person singular? Did you catch that? The Lord said, I will put enmity, strife between your offspring and hers, and he, a person, shall crush your head, the evil's head, and you shall crush his heel. In other words, a person is going to come to crush evil. And in the process of crushing Satan and evil, this he is going to get hurt in the process of being of crushing that evil. But he won't be destroyed. So this is a significant development in the story. It explains why there is death and destruction and dismay and struggle. And it sets up the story of the one that will make it all right or good once again. And so we're left with this anticipation to look for the one that is promised. And so at the end of this section of Genesis 3, we have... God's people being Adam and Eve, having been exiled. They are then sent out of Eden from God's place. Exiled from God's place. They are no longer under God's good rule and blessing, having rebelled against God. The glory of God is therefore tarnished. The good of God's people has been lost. But there's hope. There's hope. God still plans. He has not given up on his goal to have a people in a place under his rule for his glory. And apparently it's going to come from this he that is going to be born of a woman to crush the head of evil. So then from Genesis chapter 4 to Genesis chapter 11, we get exactly what we'd expect in the story. All kinds of bad things happen since we are now cut off from God's good graces, cut off from the very good. Right from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain murders his brothers. First time we see murder enter into the world. Right after the fall, Cain murders his brother Abel. And then we get in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord's assessment of how creation was going. The Lord saw the wickedness. The Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So as a result, God then washes away the world in the flood. Sort of starts over, purify the world. He finds favor with this guy by the name of Noah and his family, preserves them to kind of restart. And after the flood is over, we see that Noah steps off the ark from after having flooded the world to judge the world for their evil. Noah steps off of the ark, and what is he what is he what is it he's told? You would expect to hear something familiar, right? If God is never changing. Of course, we get exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It should sound familiar to you. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same exact words that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28. God is not giving up on his mission to fill the world with worshipers that picture him. And yet, right after this, though, after God floods the earth and Noah has kids who have kids who have kids... The world goes bad, evil again. In Genesis chapter 11, instead of spreading out and making a name for God, we see that mankind then tries to stay together and make a name for themselves. The Tower of Babel. As a result of this, God frustrates them by introducing new languages so they couldn't communicate. We get languages today, different languages today. And they spread out. But it is right here in the story, we get another, a second critical part of the story leading us to the coming of Christ. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we get another promise to a man by the name of Abram. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we see God not giving up on his mission to have his people in his place under his rule and blessing for his forever glory and his people's good. It's going to come through a woman that will crush evil and get hurt in the process. And it's going to come, we see now, through a descendant of Abram. And that blessing to Abram is going to come eventually, it's going to extend eventually, we saw Genesis 12, 3, to every family of the earth. Exactly what God wanted from the beginning. And it is for this reason that Abram is given a new name uh, of Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude of nations. And so in Genesis 15, 6, we see Abraham respond to God's grace. This is when he goes out and sees the stars in the sky. And God says, you're going to have as many, your descendants are going to be as many as stars in the sky. And in Genesis 15, 6, we see Abraham respond to God's grace by believing his promise. And it's credited to Abraham as righteousness. Righteousness, we see, this sets up a pattern, guys. This sets up a pattern in the rest of Scripture. Righteousness, rightness, healing is going to come on our side of things, not by any work that we do. But instead, it will come by God's grace to us as we trust in his promises. God uh, told Abraham these things when he was about 75 years old, the text tells us. And so he and his wife both literally fall out laughing. It's great. The Bible has a sense of humor, by the way. Uh, they fall out laughing that God is going to do this through these people, these older people, that he's going to do this at their old age. Um, and so God withholds children from Abraham and Sarah. He's going to do this great thing. Every family of the earth is going to be blessed. And he withholds them from having children, not five, not ten, not even fifteen, not even twenty, but twenty-five years later, his first child comes. It's not until he's 100 years old, Abraham has the covenant son named Isaac, which means, if you all know this, laughter. Why? Because they're just laughing at the fact that God would actually give them children at such an old age. And God's doing this, by the way. Why would God wait on this? It's very critical to understand why. So that we would understand that God was using natural processes in order to point us to the supernatural God that's behind it all. In other words, he is doing this at such a late age so that we would all know that it is God that is behind all of this. So he gives this covenant son, Isaac. Isaac has some similar circumstances to his father. He and his wife, Rebecca, they couldn't have children too until later in life. Again, God's doing this to show off, to show he's the one doing this. Eventually, Isaac and Rebecca have two little boys, Jacob and Esau. Uh, there's some fighting going on between the two of them. But eventually, the, interestingly, the younger son, Jacob, goes on to carry the covenant. The covenantal line of blessing goes through Jacob. Jacob eventually has 12 sons through four different women. Now, this illustrates God's grace again, how we can use the broken choices of man to bring about his good will. Those 12 sons, they marry women who have more children, who have more children. And eventually the Lord gives Abram, or sorry, gives Jacob a new name. He gives him a new name, which is Israel. It's an appropriate name for Jacob and all of Israel because Israel means struggles with. So this was accurate because for the rest of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel serves to act a lot like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They struggle with God and they struggle with one another. Yet the Lord continues to work his good intentions for the world and his glory out. So that by the end of Genesis, you're wondering if we're going to get there. By the end of, oh, we're going to speed up in a second, I promise. By the end of Genesis, we find Jacob and his growing family exiled from the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham. They're now exiled from Canaan. They're living in Egypt by the end of Genesis. So that uh, when we turn the page, we find in the book of Exodus, now 400 plus years have, or almost 400 years have advanced. And now Israel is, in fact, like the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore. They're very large. They're numerous. So many. They have duplicated time and time and time again. So now Israel is huge. In fact, they're so huge that the uh, government of Egypt is intimidated by the Israelites. And so they make them to be slaves for them. And this is a terrible turn of events. But 
We, if we were to go back and, care, and read very carefully, we saw that God promised Abraham many years ago that his people would in fact be in Egypt or exile for 400 years. And that's what we found. 420 years later, God hears the cries of the Israelites that are now numerous. There's so many in Egypt. He hears their cries and the, uh, what he does as a result is he delivers them out of Egypt back into the land of promise. But how he does it is critical. He finally delivers or redeems his people out of Egypt back into the land, back into the place, God's place. And he does it. He redeems it by using numerous plagues. The last one, point, of course, that leads to their deliverance comes from the body and the blood of a male, unblemished lamb. God's people are delivered from slavery back into the land of promise by a male, unblemished lamb. We could stop right there, couldn't we? Keep going. They are led by Moses. Uh, so as they're coming out of Egypt, they're led by this guy by the name of Moses. Moses is a kind of prophet, priest, and king to Israel as they're traveling. He's a prophet because he is delivering the word of God to Israel. He's a priest because he's constantly interceding with God on behalf of the so often disobedient Israel. And he's a kind of king because he's their clear leader. And it's because of this that we get another prophecy we need to pay attention to in the storyline. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. The Lord says, I will raise up from them, from Israel, a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And when we get to the end of what's called the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or uh, the laws, it is sometimes said. When we get to the end, that's the end of Deuteronomy. There's first five books of the Bible, Genesis down to Deuteronomy. When we get to the end there, we find that there's an appendices that is being written. And it's been written so far after the death of Moses that they don't even know where he's born. That's how long it's been. And what does that appendices say? Well, it says something in keeping with Deuteronomy 18. It says that there has not been a prophet like Moses that has arisen to this day. In other words, the text is leaving us to look for this new prophet that's going to come. It's like Moses. He hasn't come yet. We're still looking for him. And so when the first section of the Old Testament, an important section of the Old Testament closes, we're left looking for a he, born of a woman that will crush evil, that will be in the line of Abraham, that would go on to bless all the families of the earth. He will have the ministry of Moses which will be a leader of God's people, a kind of prophet, priest, and king that will lead out of slavery into the land of promise. And so now, that's what we're looking for. We're about to go really fast. You ready? We're going to put, press down the gasoline. Okay, here we go. From Joshua to Judges, those are the first two books that come after Deuteronomy. We see that God does give his people a place under his rule and blessing. He gives them the land of Canaan. As they're entering in there, led by Joshua, Yeshua, which in Hebrew, that's what that word name means, Savior in Hebrew. So there's a Savior bringing them into the land of promise. I could go on a whole line about that, but I'm going to stop. But just as we might expect, as they're coming into the land, there are moments of obedience and blessing. But overall, just like Adam, the first Adam, God's people fail to live in God's place of Canaan in a way that is under his rule and blessing, that pictures his glory and their people's good. So instead, like Adam and Eve, they want to be like God, Israel does. They want to do whatever is right in their own eyes. But God does not give up on his mission to have a people in a place under his rule and blessing for his glory. Those promises to Abraham, those promises to Moses, uh, those things, they still remain. That then leads us into the book of Samuel where Israel wants a king like everybody else has. Now you should know, in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, God makes a provision for a king. But the desire for a king in Samuel is different. They want a king like everybody else. They want a king like the world. So what does God do for them? Well, he gives them exactly what they want. He gives them a king like the rest of the world. He gives them as God a king by the name of Saul. Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. He has a lot of hair. He's a lot taller than me. And uh, he looks really good. He's really powerful and strong. And he starts out good, Saul does, but he fails. Just like all the kings of the world. And God, after him, though, committed to his 
glory to have a people in a place. He raises up a king after Saul, his own king. And his name is, do you know? David. David. This is not a king like the rest of the world. David is an interesting choice because he is so different than the way the world would have operated. David is an interesting choice because he is the youngest of his many brothers. And the first sight we see of David is him being a shepherd. So this anointed king, the first sight of him, this anointed king, he's a kind of king shepherd. So unlikely as of a choice was David that his father Jesse didn't even bother to bring him to the prophet Samuel to see if he might be among those that would be anointed king of the Lord. King by the Lord. And yet David is chosen. David is this king. He goes on to become Israel's greatest king. He takes more of God's place, Canaan, than anyone before him or even after them. David brings in riches to Israel like Israel had never known. But David fails. He sins himself. But unlike every other person before him, David repents of that sin. He turns away. He understands not only that he broke God's law, but he broke God's heart. (coughs) He asks the Lord forgiveness. It is said of this same David many years later that he was a man after God's own heart. So the Lord not only forgives David, but also he makes a great promise to David. A promise on the level of what we saw after the fall in Eden and in Abraham and to Moses. Here we go. Y'all need to note this one. This is an important one. Another promise comes in to David to track in the story. And that comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. Here's what it says. So the Lord speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is the one that is going to come, crush evil, be like Moses, will be of the line of Abraham, and be a king, a forever kind of king in the line of David. So after David dies, we get the books of Kings and Chronicles. And what happens in that book is interesting. In Kings and Chronicles, what they're doing is the author is still looking for the answer to all these promises. So you'll notice when you read Kings and Chronicles, what does it say? Time and again. And so and so became king and he was an evil king. Right? Next chapter. So and so became king and he was an evil king. Right? And every once in a while you get a good one. Josiah, Hezekiah. So and so. Josiah, he was a good king. And he did this good, good thing, this good thing. But he didn't take down the high places. And then he died. So he's not the king. So what's the author doing? The author's doing the same thing the author was doing at the end of Deuteronomy. They're looking for the answer. And they keep going. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. We're still looking. He hasn't come yet. And amidst all of this time, when all these kings are doing awful things, Israel just continues to make poor choices. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. God begins to then send prophets. And by the way, I should mention, if you're wondering where Psalms is at in the midst of this, Psalms is intended to kind of be a reflection of this strange mixed world where we're living in the kingdom of the world yet still hoping in the kingdom of God. That's what Psalms is doing. Looking for this hope of the one to come yet still in the midst of struggle. In the midst of all of this struggle, these kings are doing bad. We have these promises. Nothing seems to be going right. God, through these prophets, gives us some more information to be looking for. So, for instance... We read, and I should back up, by the way, when, we, when we're thinking about these prophets that are speaking to Israel, that's the books of the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah. And then there's a book of the 12, what's called, 12 minor prophets, Haggai, Malachi, these guys. Uh, so uh, in the midst of this time, these prophets are speaking. They're calling Israel to repent. In the midst of this darkness, things are getting worse. They're not repenting on the whole. God gives us more information in Isaiah 7.14. That this king that's going to come is going to be born of a virgin. Now why would God do that? Yet again, we should know why, right? Remember what he did with Abraham and Isaac? Like he's going to do it in such a way so that we would all conclude God had to have done this. Later we see in Isaiah that this child that was going to be born of a virgin was going to come and be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And that should sound familiar to us by now, right? God wanted Genesis 128, the whole world full of his glory, and he made a promise to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And final thing we see, we could mention other things, but in, in the book of Micah, we see that God says this one that's going to come was going to be born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David, the same city that David 
was born. And here we have, guys, there we did it. Ready? We finished the book of, or finished the first section of the Bible. There's the Old Testament. When the Old Testament, things close. As it closes, things are looking really, really, really bad. (laughs) Israel had been exiled uh, as a result of their constant sin. They had been exiled out of God's place. They had been taken away by Assyria and Babylon and eventually Persia. Taken away, exiled from God's place. And as the Old Testament closes, things just look awful. Uh, We find towards the end of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's some few that have streamed back and they've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall and they're celebrating. But even in their celebration, we find at the end of the Old Testament, they're still sad. Jerusalem lies in ruins. This king, this prophet of the line of Abraham and David hasn't come. And they're wondering. Things look so bad. They're wondering what's going on. No son of Abraham has come. No son of David that was like Moses that had been born of a virgin in Bethlehem had come to deliver God's people back into his peace. Things looked bleak. That's how the Old Testament ends. They're still looking. Still waiting. Jerusalem is in shambles. And we find that for 400 years, no, God sends no godly prophet, no godly king. Silence. For 400 years, in between the ending of the Old Testament and what we read next. That's how Acts chapter, the sorry, the second act of the story of God ends, fades. And then the light of Act 3 enters the story. We had creation, we have fall, and now Act 3 in the story. Redemption. Now if you open up your Bible to Matthew 1, you should look down there now. What's the first line in the New Covenant all? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wonder of wonders. What's the author doing? He's finally here. He's finally come. He's finally showed up. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Why? You ever wonder why all that genealogy is happening? Why does that stuff got to be in the Bible? This is why. He's got to answer all those promises. They're carefully documenting God, knowing that he's going to come up these lines. And they carefully document, Matthew does. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's carefully documenting the lineage, the kind of record of Christ to see if he fits the story, the, the, the promises of God. And he does. And now, beloved, you know the rest of the story. Just in case you don't, let me tell you. Matthew carefully documents the lineage of Jesus. He is of the line of Abraham and of the line of David. Of David, look at Matthew one eighteen. We see that Mary, who's the mother that would bear Jesus, she became pregnant before it says she had come together with Joseph. We see the prophecy of Isaiah referenced there in one twenty three that Jesus is born of a virgin. And also, listen to this, just as the Lord had said, we see in Matthew 2, 5, the prophecy of this child being born in Bethlehem is referenced. And lo and behold, we see in verses 8 to 10 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So here we have Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the answer. He's born of a virgin woman in the town of Bethlehem, in the line of Abraham and David. And this, of course, is all coming together for the Magi in chapter 2, verse 10. They know that they are about to get blessed because of that promise of God from times past. And so Matthew 2, verse 10, we see the Magi of the nations, we sang about them a moment ago, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. All of it's coming together. The most important question of all has not yet been answered. Do you remember that first promise? Genesis 3, 15, right after the fall? That hasn't been answered yet. Will this Jesus crush evil and bring God's people into God's place and bring them under God's rule and blessing for God's glory and the people's good? Will that happen? Will they extend, as God promised to Abraham many years ago, all the way back to Genesis 1.28, to all the families of the earth? In other words, will this Jesus come and crush evil and then will it extend out and be fruitful, multiply and fill the world? (laughs) And those people ruling over the world in a way that pleases God. Will that happen? In other words, if we can say it simply, would Jesus go about restoring the world to God's very good creation? 
But we find him doing just as the Lord promised Moses. There's the fulfillment of Moses. He is speaking God's word to men. He's where the prophets used to say, this is important when you're reading the Bible. Uh, where the prophets used to say, the Lord says, the Lord says, the Lord says. Jesus shows up on the scene and what does he say? Truly, truly, I say. Jesus is noted for his speaking authoritatively, not like the other teachers. And when he speaks, he speaks like the son of David, as one that is bringing in a kingdom. Jesus, time it. What's he talking about all the time when you read the Gospels? He's always talking about a kingdom, isn't he? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, time and time again. Always talking about a kingdom. He even prays that God's will, would, the model prayer for him is that God's will would be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. We see glimpses of his power and restoration when he heals the sick and raises the dead. Again, giving us insight into this very good world again. But he still has yet to fulfill the first promise of God to give the death blow to sin and death and evil. In fact, though, that's why Jesus said he came. He came not just to be a good teacher, do some good things. Jesus says himself in Mark 10, 45, he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He understood himself to be a payment. And after being handed over to eventually be crucified, Jesus said in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus understands this is the heart of why he came in the first the purpose was to pay the ransom note for our sin on the cross by laying his life down as a substitute for sin. And there is the problem with the world, guys. It's not primarily education or medicinal care. Those are problems. But the sin of the world, that's the heart of it. It's causing all the rest of it. And Jesus has come to take care of the root, to crush the head of the serpent, to crush sin and death, and to reorder the world the way it's supposed to be. Jesus Christ comes in. This is why he says he's come. Jesus lives the life that we didn't live. He lived the life that the first Adam didn't live. The second Adam lives a sinless life, Jesus. Never does wrong. Perfectly obeys God's word. And he goes as a result of that. He is the perfect male, unblemished lamb whose blood and body leads to the deliverance, the redemption, to the land of promise for all those that believe. And we know that his sacrificial atoning death on the cross does that for sin because on the third day, just as he promised, and by the way, I could go back and show you Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, I could show you Ezekiel 7, uh, 37 back in the Old Testament, Jesus raises from the dead on the third day, therefore showing that he did crush sin and death on its head. He defeated it through his resurrection and the cross, the pain, the scars indicate his death, indicates that he got hurt in the process, but he didn't lose. Heaven and earth is coming together. The very good is coming together. And the second act, the perfect act, Jesus the Christ. Jesus crushes the head of sin, Satan, and death. He overcame it in the resurrection. Jesus, through Christ, he's recreating the world, therefore making possible that very good creation again. And the way into that very good. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're wondering, this sounds like the world I live in, it sounds like something no man could ever make up. Sounds supernatural. And you're wondering, how is it you get into this very good creation? This very good God that is working out his purposes in the world. Jesus makes it super clear. At the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says himself, this is his whole mention, repent of your sin and believe the gospel. That's what he says. Mark 1.15, go read it for yourself. Repent of sin, believe Christ as Lord, and then live under his kingship, under his lordship. That's how God reorders our own hearts, reorders the world. It's not primarily through worldly government, it's through a heavenly government. And his forever king, working out his purposes in the world. Those that turn from sin and trust in Christ are born again. This new creation, that's what the Bible calls it, new creation, recreation. These are God's people. These Christians, they are God's people. They are said to be, in the Philippians, citizens of heaven. Not citizens of the earth. Through them, God is picturing his restoration. And so after Jesus' resurrection, he's speaking to his disciples, and he says something that should sound very familiar to you. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, 
Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus claims for himself all authority. Therefore, as a result of my authority, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, that's the sign of the new covenant. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. Singular name, Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Teaching them, those that return, turn from sin, trust in Jesus, are baptized. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded them. And you should say, well, Nathan, before, in the Old Testament, they weren't able to obey. But something is new. Because of the atoning blood of Christ, now they're able. Now the Spirit can take up residence within those believers to cause them to obey. Which has Jesus to say, all that I've commanded, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded them. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now Jesus could perform it within us by his grace and power of the Spirit. We clearly, the Old Testament testifies, mankind cannot do it. God is going to do it because of the work of his Son, through the power of the Spirit. Because of the finished work of Christ, the Spirit could live within believers, cause them to obey. Heaven and earth is now possible. The second Adam, Jesus, did what the first Adam never did. We read about the Spirit of Christ descending upon (coughs) believers after those first four Gospels in the book of Acts. The Gospel spreads them as the Gospel goes forth. People respond to that Gospel and this is where the church comes together. Jesus ordained the church in Matthew 16. That's his vessel. These gatherings like this come together. People responding and these little churches are getting planted all over the world. In these communities, one just like this one, heaven and earth is coming together. Lives are being changed. Marriages are being changed. Old sinful habits are being done away with. People are coming together. We see in the book of Acts, the gospel spreads. It goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Doesn't that sound familiar? God's people in God's place. It's beginning to happen as the gospel travels the world. Churches are planted. These embassies of heaven out in front of time. And we stand in Act 3 looking for the final chapter. The ending of the book of the Bible. Will it all come? Will it all get completed? It's clearly happened. It's happening. But will it get finished? So Act 3 fades. Act 4 comes to the fore. And that's found in the book of Revelation. The very last book of the Bible. In Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9, we see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered at the foot of that bloody land. And they're singing as one people. Worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy are you, Jesus. And it even goes on to say right at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And listen, pay attention to the words here. And I saw a holy, the, the holy city coming where? Down, out of heaven from God. So out of heaven to the earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let's sum it up. God's people, that is those that have by grace through faith have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They are, as God's promised Abraham, to, to Abraham, they are of, the, of all the earth, families of all the earth. That's exactly what we see happen. And they are in God's place, which is heaven coming down to a resurrected earth, a city of God. And there under we see God's rule and blessing. They are now righteous because of the work of Christ. And this glorifies God and it is for the good of his people. But it all comes together in Christ. It all comes together in Christ. What God planned in the beginning in Genesis, he has in the end because of the coming of Christ at Christmas. And so guys, turn back in your minds to that pivotal entry of Jesus into the story of the Bible. Can you understand more fully now why that host of angels were singing praises to those shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those of whom he is pleased. You understand that why? Now why? Those angels knew what was happening. They knew the rest of the story. They had been waiting for this moment. God was now entering into his own story. 
in order to do what man had proven he could never do by the Old Testament, to have a world that God always wanted, the world that we want, they can never seem to find, heaven on earth, and it's all because of Jesus, which is why we sing joy to the world. So let me leave us then with two very brief applications. After having preached the whole Bible, hopefully you see the storyline of Jesus and what he's doing in the world. We read in Mary, when she's told all that Jesus would do, the text tells us that she marveled. That's the first application. Marvel. Look back and marvel at what God has done in Christ. To marvel is to wonder, to be in a state of profound joy. What Mary and all of those prophets were looking forward to, guys, we now look back to. That's the first application. Look back and wonder, marvel, be amazed at what God has done and is doing through Christ in the world. And guys, we don't really hardly wonder anymore, do we? We don't marvel much anymore. It didn't used to be that way. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, I loved Christmas. Christmas was my favorite time of the year. Because I did a lot of wondering. It's very mysterious and beautiful to me. But I find that the older I get, I don't marvel much anymore. I've lost a lot of that. Now I realize, guys, that when I say that, it sounds a little bit like a cheesy line from a Christmas movie, doesn't it? Right? I don't marvel anymore. I need to get back out to some Hallmark movie. I've got to go to some distant country land and find an old house and reform it and have a Christmas service. But there's more than that. Right? We've got to recapture wonder. I think the reason why we've lost our wonder the older we grow up is because we now sort of understand how the world works in wonder phase. Where lightning and thunder used to be the voice of God, now meteorologists just tell us it's just hot and cold air coming together. What before used to be faint, now we just reduce it to mere coincidence. Where before, when we were children, we used to read uh, fiction novels and had our imaginations illumined. But now we just pay attention to our news feeds. We've lost wonder. We've lost marvel. So if we're ever going to grow in the heavenly love of Christ, we're going to have to slow down, get into some extended quiet places, and let our biblically informed consciences be free to imagine. To wonder. To marvel again, like we did when we were kids. The reason why that's so important is because when we wonder, we are lifted up out of our circumstances and we are able to not only see, but feel the beauty of the world that God is making through Christ and the church. We preachers have done a terrible job, a lot of us, of reducing the kingdom to mere doctrines. And those doctrines are critical to understand, but we need to experience those doctrines as much as we know them. We enter into the shepherd's joy, into Mary's joy. We enter into heaven on earth when we begin to marvel by looking back and experiencing and slowing down and seeing the beauty of it all. And so this Christmas, look back, enter into the joy of Mary, marvel at her joy. Enter into the joy of those shepherds, of Joseph, the angels, the magi, my favorite, Simeon and Anna. Go back and see and savor. Consider what it was like to wait year after year, hundreds and hundreds of years, sitting in that darkness, waiting for it to come, and it finally comes. Slow down. Get your hearts there. Wonder. Look back and wonder. Consider what it was like to stand next to Abraham as he looked into those stars, believing that a promise was going to come. Consider what it was like to stand next to Moses when he received the promise of a greater deliverer that would do even more than what he did. Consider what it was like to stand next to King David when he knew that all of those lands and all of those riches were nothing in comparison to this other king that's going to come. Enter into the joy of your master and wonder at what Christ has done by looking back. And realize, guys, that through his church, right now, God is doing 10,000 things. And most of the world doesn't even pay attention to it. But he's doing tons of things. Grow spiritual eyes. Look back and wonder. Second application. As we wonder at Christ by looking back in that wonder, then look forward and trust. Look forward and trust in that wonder. 
We look forward and trust that as God has been faithful to deliver healing, restoration, as he has brought peace on the earth through his son, as he is now carrying that out, so he will make good on his promises in the end. So will he be good to have, uh, to have Christ return again. Not this time by having his son lie in a manger, but come back as a conquering king. And this time he won't leave. God's people in God's place. Under God's rule and blessing for his forever glory and our forever good. Trust, beloved, that that day is coming. And in wonder, don't only trust in it, hope in it. Which is to say, let that reality inform your tomorrows. I don't need to tell you, beloved, that life is hard. Sin, suffering, and death, they still plague us. We are still in exile from our heavenly homes. We are experiencing the darkness of this world, though Christ has defeated it. I don't need to tell you that this is not our home, that we are sojourners for a time. We are, guys, been delivered by the body and blood of an unblemished lamb like those Israelites making our way from Egypt to the land of promise. But we haven't gotten there yet. We have been delivered. We're looking forward to getting there. And remember that as it has been in the past, so it will be going forward, guys. Remember that in the past we saw that it was the darkness of Babel that led to the light of Abraham. Remember that it was that darkness of those 400 years of exile in Egypt, full of slavery, that led to the glorious redemption in that one night by the blood of a lamb. Remember that in exile, that God's people were exiled for some hundreds of years. God didn't actually, I'm sorry, dozens of years. And then also there was this 400 years of silence that erupted in joy when we turned the page into Matthew 1. We must endure darkness in our exile. But brothers, sisters, light is coming. And Jesus says that it will come so quickly that we won't even have time to prepare for it. We look back and we wonder. We marvel at what God has done. And then in wonder, we look forward and we trust and hope in that day to come. This is why I get to study for the next two months. It's going to be great. Don't expect too much of me when I come back. It's going to be a good day. The day that, as Jesus says, when he returns, will come so quickly there will be no time to prepare. The day of judgment, the day of redemption, the final chapter. Let that day inform the difficulties of this day. Look back and wonder at the glory of Christ coming. Look forward and trust and hope in the glory of Christ's second coming. And beloved, soon enough, he'll be here. He'll be glad that you endure to the end. We will be with him and he will be us because as the scriptures teach us, the dwelling place of God is with man. Look back and wonder. Look forward, trust and hope. Christ has come. He will come again and he will bring in God's people to their place under his rule and blessing for his forever glory and our forever good. This book is an amazing testament. It's been attacked time and again. It has stood the test of time and Christ has fulfilled it all. And he will make it right in the end. Trust him. Hope in him. And remember that on Tuesday when you open those gifts that he's the greatest gift of all. And he's bringing heaven and earth together through his son in us.